Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine podcast for June 2nd, 2020. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of what's new in Annals since our last podcast. As our professional settings face the challenge of finding a new normal as we approach the end of at least phase one of the COVID-19 pandemic, I hope you, your loved ones, and colleagues are staying well. And since learning about COVID-19 remains a necessary priority during this challenging time, I'll begin by telling you about recently published material that you'll find in the coronavirus collection on annals.org. Studies suggest that many patients with COVID-19 and acute respiratory distress syndrome experience a cytokine storm characterized by fever, hyperferritinemia, and a massive release of inflammatory cytokines, including interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and monocyte chemoattractant proteins. These findings led to the hypothesis that biological agents targeting specific cytokine or inflammatory pathways may improve the respiratory outcomes of patients with the most severe forms of COVID-19. Researchers from Toulouse, France, tested this hypothesis on a 51-year-old man who was status post to kidney transplant and now severely ill with COVID-19 and on a ventilator. Upon hospital admission, the doctors discontinued the patient's immunosuppressive therapy tacrolimus, and mycophenolate lapatil, but the patient progressed to multi-organ failure and hemophagocytic syndrome the next day. Given the salutary effects of interleukin-6 receptor inhibition on the treatment of secondary hemophagocytic syndromes, they treated the patient with tocilizumab, and the patient's clinical status improved dramatically. This experience hopefully bodes well for the results of ongoing trials of tocilizumab in patients with respiratory failure due to COVID-19. Next is a systematic review by researchers from McMaster University who reviewed the evidence about the benefits and harms of alternative non-invasive and invasive ventilation strategies in acute hypoxic respiratory failure in patients infected with COVID-19. They found 45 eligible studies on COVID-19, 70 on SARS, and 8 on MERS, but only one of the COVID-19 studies, three of the SARS studies, and one of the MERS studies adjusted for important confounders. Based on indirect low-certainty evidence related to other coronaviruses and virus transmission to healthcare workers, the authors conclude that use of non-invasive ventilation may reduce mortality or need for invasive mechanical ventilation. However, the use of non-invasive ventilation and the choice of ventilation strategy must be balanced against the risk of potentially increased transmission of infection to healthcare workers resulting from aerosol-generating procedures. The authors plan weekly literature surveillance for emerging evidence related to non-invasive ventilation in people with acute hypoxic respiratory failure caused by any coronavirus through May 2021. When new evidence is identified, updates will be published in annals. As the COVID-19 pandemic progressed across the world, governments, international agencies, policymakers, and public health officials began recommending widespread use of non-medical grade cloth masks to reduce transmission of SARS-CoV-2. The authors of an ideas and opinions commentary write, quote, no direct evidence indicates that public mask wearing protects either the wearer or others. However, given the severity of this pandemic and the difficulty of control, We suggest that the possible benefit of modest reduction in transmission likely outweighs the possibility of harm. Reduced outward transmission and reduced contamination of the environment are the major proposed mechanisms, and we suggest appealing to altruism and the need to protect others, end quote. 
The COVID-19 pandemic has spread worldwide rapidly. Commonly reported symptoms such as fever, cough, dyspnea, fatigue, and myalgia are nonspecific, and the lack of testing in some settings can make the diagnosis of COVID-19 challenging. However, two distinctive symptoms have garnered a lot of attention, the loss of senses of smell and taste. Authors from Belgium used a standardized online questionnaire to collect clinical and epidemiologic data from 2,153 consecutive hospitalized and ambulatory patients in 18 European hospitals with mild to moderate COVID-19 to evaluate the prevalence and features of, as well as recovery from, smell dysfunction. The authors found that the prevalence of self-reported smell and taste dysfunction is higher than previously reported. Their results suggest that anosmia appears unrelated to nasal obstruction or inflammation, but rather due to some other yet-to-be-defined virus-associated mechanism. Researchers from the Dalolana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto developed an epidemiologic model to explore the effect of physical distancing measures on COVID-19 transmission in the population of Ontario, Canada. Their findings suggest that without intervention, Ontario, which is currently below ICU capacity, would have rapidly exceeded ICU capacity and observed substantially higher COVID-19-related mortality. The model also shows the challenges associated with relaxation of physical existing measures without a concomitant increase in other public health measures. Specifically, the model predicts that when the number of contacts between persons returns to more than 50% of normal, disease activity could resurge rapidly and ICUs could quickly reach their capacity. As many settings begin to relax social distancing measures, it is definitely worth taking a close look at this article on annals.org. Next is another living review. This one summarizes evidence about the benefits and harms of using hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine to treat COVID-19. The review found that available evidence is very weak regarding a beneficial effect of hydroxychloroquine on such outcomes as all-cause mortality, progression to severe disease, clinical symptoms, and upper respiratory virologic clearance with antigen testing. The evidence for chloroquine was similarly weak. Moving to topics other than COVID-19. On May 26, Annals published a study that showed that having a single negative high-quality screening colonoscopy was associated with reduced colorectal cancer incidence and mortality for up to 17.4 years. Current guidelines recommend a 10-year interval between negative screening colonoscopies for average-risk adults. This recommendation is based on estimates of the dwell time between adenoma and carcinoma, as well as extrapolations from studies assessing colonoscopy performance. A lack of long-term data makes it challenging to determine the optimal screening interval following a normal colonoscopy. Researchers from Warsaw, Poland studied a screening registry for 165,887 individuals to assess the long-term risk for colorectal cancer and death from colorectal cancer after high and low quality single negative screening colonoscopies. The researchers found that a single negative screening colonoscopy was associated with a significantly reduced colorectal cancer incidence and mortality over more than 17 years of follow-up, but only high-quality colonoscopy provided a profound and stable reduction in both colorectal cancer incidence and mortality throughout the follow-up period. High quality of the endoscopy was key for the long-term efficacy of screening colonoscopy in the proximal colon and among women. 
The researchers point out that these findings are of paramount importance because previous reports have questioned the efficacy of colonoscopy in the proximal colon and of screening sigmoidoscopy in women. These findings suggest that the currently recommended 10-year interval for screening colonoscopy is safe and could potentially be extended. Next is a cross-sectional study that implicates the hormone aldosterone as a common and unrecognized contributor to hypertension. Hypertension affects more than 1.5 billion people worldwide and is arguably the leading preventable cause of heart disease and stroke. Primary aldosteronism is a condition of aldosterone excess that, while associated with hypertension, has traditionally been considered to be an uncommon cause of hypertension. The findings of this study show that it is much more common than previously recognized. Researchers from four academic medical centers studied patients with normotension, stage 1 hypertension, stage 2 hypertension, and resistant hypertension to determine the prevalence of excess aldosterone production and primary aldosteronism. They found that there was a continuum of excess aldosterone production that paralleled the severity of blood pressure. Importantly, most of this excess aldosterone production would have not been recognized by currently recommended diagnostic approaches. According to the authors, this finding supports the need to redefine primary aldosteronism from a rare disease to instead a common syndrome that manifests across a broad severity spectrum and may be a primary contributor of hypertension. Moreover, since generic medications that block the deleterious effects of aldosterone already exist and are easily available, these findings suggest that using these drugs more frequently to treat hypertension may be an effective way to lower the risk of cardiovascular disease. The author of an accompanying editorial, Dr. John Funder, who currently chairs the International Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Primary Aldosteronism, called the study a game changer. He indicated that these findings should trigger a radical reconstruction of current clinical practice and guideline recommendations. A case report also published on May 26 suggests that the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist drug liraglutide seems to provide excellent glucose control in patients with type 2 diabetes who are also taking a beta blocker, specifically propranolol, to prevent bleeding from esophageal varices due to cirrhosis, but it seems to hamper the pharmacological effects of beta blockers. Researchers from University of Bologna report 18 consecutive patients with cirrhosis who are receiving propranolol to prevent variceal bleeding while also receiving liraglutide for uncontrolled type 2 diabetes. Liraglutide provided optimal control of blood glucose, hemoglobin A1c, and body weight, but the researchers observed a lack of optimal effect of beta blockers on heart rate after starting liraglutide. However, in the small cohort, no increase in bleeding was observed. The researchers proposed a mechanistic molecular explanation of how a GLP-1 receptor agonist might prevent beta-adrenergic receptor blockade. Moving to non-COVID articles published on June 2nd, the first article showed that extending rituximab infusions beyond 18 months was associated with lower rates of relapse compared with standard maintenance therapy in patients with antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody-associated vasculitis. These findings suggest that long-term rituximab use should be the standard of care. Prognosis of antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody-associated vasculitis has improved with treatment that includes glucocorticoids and rituximab. Following disease remission, patients typically receive four infusions of rituximab over 18 months to maintain remission, but relapses are common. 
Researchers from Paris, France, randomly assigned 97 patients in 39 centers to receive infusions of either rituximab or placebo every six months over an 18-month period after they had already achieved complete remission and completed an initial 18 months of rituximab maintenance therapy. At month 28, the percentage of participants who experienced a relapse was lower in the rituximab group, 4%, than in the placebo group, 26%. 12 participants in the rituximab group reported a serious side effect, including six serious infections, compared to 14 participants in the placebo group, including four serious infections. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that long-term use of rituximab is effective and probably safe and should be considered the standard of care for patients with vasculitis. The author of an accompanying editorial recognizes the author's convincing argument for long-term use of rituximab therapy, but raises the question of how long therapy should continue. Rituximab therapy was associated with some serious side effects to some patients. The editorialist suggests that individual patient characteristics and risk factors should be considered when determining who would benefit from long-term therapy. Chloride-deficient metabolic alkalosis usually has an obvious cause, but the situation can be more complicated in patients with cystic fibrosis. Researchers from Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center report the case of a 32-year-old man with known cystic fibrosis who complained of weakness, fatigue, and failure to thrive for several days. He worked long hours in the sun as a painter and felt that his job was, quote, killing him, end quote. Laboratory tests revealed severe metabolic alkalosis. Most patients who develop chloride-deficient metabolic alkalosis lose chloride in their GI tract or urine. Cystic fibrosis is characterized by excessive chloride content in sweat. According to the authors, this patient illustrates how sweat can be an important loss of electrolytes that can occasionally lead to chloride-deficient metabolic alkalosis particularly in patients with cystic fibrosis. Stigma and behavioral health workforce shortages result in a substantial mismatch between the prevalence of mental health disorders and the proportion of persons who receive effective treatment. One potential solution is integrating behavioral health into medical care. While one in five adults has a clinically significant mental or substance use disorder, behavioral health integration into U.S. medical practice remains uncommon. Findings from a qualitative study published on June 2nd shed light on the barriers to integrating behavioral health into medical practice. Researchers from Rand Corporation conducted semi-structured interviews with a diverse group of 47 physician practice leaders, 20 behavioral health experts, and five behavioral health vendors to solicit their views about factors influencing physician practice implementation of behavioral health integration. The qualitative study revealed that factors related to successful integration included clinicians who were motivated to better meet the needs of their patients, to enhance the reputation of their practice, and had local resources and financial incentives that supported integration. Payment for service was a substantial issue related to integration, as few saw a positive financial return on any investment in behavioral health. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Sue Bornstein of the Texas Medical Home Initiative says that the value that primary care and cognitive service bring to the U.S. healthcare system is underappreciated. She suggests that fundamental changes must occur in payment and delivery systems in order for primary care to reach its full potential for achieving better health for persons with behavioral health needs. Next is a research and reporting methods article that provides a checklist of 12 items to include in abstracts of studies reporting the development or validation of a diagnostic or prognostic prediction model. 
Most of the articles in the June 2nd print issue were initially published online and discussed in prior podcasts. New in the issue is an in-the-clinic review on systemic lupus erythematosus and a Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds that addresses the question of appropriate corticosteroid use in patients with COPD. Also accompanying the June 2nd issue is a special supplement funded by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Electronic health records have become ubiquitous in the United States, but their implementation with regard to care delivery, reporting, and research has not reached its full potential. The articles in the supplement aim to guide those carrying out improvement and innovation efforts in the EHR era toward more robust approaches that will in turn provide more robust results. The articles contained in the supplement should frame a more useful and actionable body of literature about how to implement change in the digital era. Guest editors for the supplement are Andrew Auerbach from the University of California, San Francisco, and David Bates from Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. I encourage anyone who uses or is considering using EHR data in implementation and improvement work and those who wish to be more knowledgeable consumers of such research to take a look at the supplement articles. The papers answer questions such as, what are the factors that define high-quality research of this type? What should researchers be attentive to when designing, conducting, and reporting their work? What should clinicians, administrators, patients, and policymakers be looking for as they consider the application of the results of such research into their own endeavors? This brings me to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll listen again in two weeks. In the meantime, take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned and earn CME and MOC credit when you do. In addition to the Annals collection of articles on coronavirus, I encourage you to take a look at the American College of Physicians collection of educational resources related to the pandemic that is available for free to everyone on ACP Online. Most important, stay well, stay six feet away from others when possible, and remember to wash your hands and try not to touch your face. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.